Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603-356-2137. Okay, so this is the forecast beginning Friday, uh, April 28th. I think of note, um, the discussion section is pretty lengthy here, so I, you know, the Mount Washington Observatory really recommends that everybody read the discussion uh, because there are some other potential things that can happen. But the big highlight here is uh, looking at uh, Friday into Saturday. So um, winds will, will begin to increase Friday night as pressure gradients increase ahead of an approaching warm front with gusts reaching or slightly exceeding hurricane force by Saturday afternoon. Um, precipitation will begin to spread in Saturday morning with isolated snow showers possible at elevations above 4,500 feet. And uh, so it's going to be a pretty wintry weekend. Uh, just use caution up there, especially with those winds. So for Friday, it's in the clear under mostly sunny skies, early then becoming increasingly cloudy with highs in the upper 30s. Winds will be south, shifting southeast at uh, 5 to 20 miles per hour, becoming light and variable at times. And the wind chill will be 5 to 15 above, then rising to above 30 degrees. Um, Friday night, they're talking about 15 to 30 mile an hour winds uh, midnight, and then 25 to 40 mile an hour with gusts up to 50 miles an hour later in the night, falling to 5 to 15 above for a temp is under mostly cloudy skies. Saturday, in and out of the clouds, trending into the clouds with isolated morning snow showers, increasing in coverage and transitioning to a wintry mix by afternoon. Possible snow and sleet accumulations of a trace to two inches. Possible ice accumulations of a trace to a tenth of an inch from freezing rain. Uh, high in the lower 30s. Winds southeast at 25 to 40 miles an hour, increasing to 50 to 65 miles an hour with gusts up to 80 miles an hour with a wind chill 5 to 15 above. Studio in the great state of New Hampshire. 
Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Episode 103, I'm doing. 103. Back from my travels. No kidding. Yeah, you made it back safe. Welcome back. Yeah, yeah, Florida is an interesting place. Do you know what I was thinking about um, when I was I was walking through like these grassy sections in Florida, Stomp, and I was like, I don't I don't even think about ticks when I'm in Florida. Really? Yeah. How come? Are they a problem down there? Or? There's no, no, there's no, no such thing as ticks in Florida. <laughs> Just giant ticks called alligators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got alligators and whatnot. But uh, and I did some. I hiked on the beach every morning. I did like a <laughs> yeah major elevation. I would hike like no elevation, but I would do <laughs> like five miles or so. So I would uh-huh. go to Vero Beach Center, and then I would hike out to the section called South Beach, and then keep going. And all these like multi million dollar homes. Well, I was walking past, but I feel like. Mm-hmm. Long term, like I definitely would not be in love with doing that like every day. Like I would like to do hiking in New Hampshire and in the mountains. It's just like oh, yeah. the scenery's yeah. the same over and over again. Absolutely. No, I hear you. I mean, my, my time down in Florida just visiting was tough, especially with the humidity and the, the gigantic bugs, prehistoric bugs. It's crazy down there. Yeah, but there are no ticks, which is nice. Um, but I definitely that am struggling nice. with the idea that I... I think in the future, like my wife is probably going to be pushing to do sort of the back and forth between living in Florida and living up north. And yeah. I don't know how well I'm going to do with it, but it's it's all about the compromise. Huh. Wow. That'd be a challenge, huh? So I, I'd have yeah. to put up yeah. with looking at you, like recording while you're in the closet down there, <laughs> down south. <laughs> Oh, so listen to this. I'm going through TSA. And first of all, like the TSA people are like yelling at me and my daughter. Like we're, we think oh, we're, we've got our computers out. She's got oh, her yeah. iPad out or whatever. And I'm like, they changed the rule on the computer. Like sometimes you have to have it out. Sometimes you don't have to have it out. So huh. the guy's yelling at everyone, like, you know, take your shoes off. <laughs> don't push the bin until I tell you to push the bin and the whole thing. And you know, finally we put the computers back in and everything's good. And then my bag got pulled. You know how you go through the the thing? My bag got pulled okay. because I was carrying my microphone in my luggage, <laughs> my carry-on. And they like, the yeah. guy immediately like rips it open. And I was like, I know he's going to look and see what this thing is. So it was my yeah. big giant microphone. It's an IED or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> and he's like, he could have cared less. He's like, whatever. <laughs> Dude, yeah. you've reached the pinnacle of name dropping. Like yeah, you would drop the name. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, he just he looked at me like I was like a bug on oh, his shoe. It was just embarrassing. So that is hilarious. That's a good one. <laughs> that'll be it. That'll be it for Florida until Christmas. But it's fun, you know. Family's down there, and I got more. I have. I've got a Caribbean trip planned, and then I've got Yosemite in. Um, September. So more stuff to come. Yeah. 
Epic. That's super funny. Epic. Epic. <laughs> All right. So let's do the show intro here. So um, welcome to episode 103 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we welcome our friend, Kathleen Labonte-Smith. Did I get your last name correct, Kathleen? You did. Excellent. Welcome, welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So Kathleen is an author <laughs> who has recently published her new book called Rescue Me Behind the Scenes of Search and Rescue. Rescue Me takes the reader behind the scenes of some of North America's riskiest search and rescue operations, sharing real life stories as told by volunteer members of search and rescue teams. A lot of the topics and stories in the book align with what we often discuss on this podcast. So we are excited to dig into some details about this book and learn more about Kathleen's journey writing it. All this, plus we've got some updates on the latest events going on around New England related to hiking and search and rescue. We've got a story about REI's flagship Portland, Oregon stores closing, a look back at a well-known Mount Everest rescue, and we've got some recent hike updates from Stomp and Mrs. Stomp, and we've got a story about a drone that was used to locate the remains of a missing person in Hampstead, New Hampshire. So a lot of stuff on the plate tonight. So I'm Mike. Mm-hmm. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Let's get started. All right, Stomp. I got a couple of housekeeping. I got one housekeeping thing here. So mm-hmm. a friend sent over an update, uh, a gentleman by the name of Tim. He's involved with the Mount Washington um, Hill Climb. So I think you would talk about okay. that. Yes. And yes he had just given yes. us a heads up and said, normally they do that hill climb. So for the listeners, I think what he was talking about is like the, the rate, they have cars that go up and it takes them like, what, five minutes to get from the bottom to the top? Mm-hmm. Roughly. Yeah, the record's like just over five minutes. Yeah, yeah. So typically they do that like every three years, but Tim had said that... Um, it's supposed to be next year, but there's a conflict. So the next event is actually in 2025. Okay. Wow. What a bummer. So, Gotta wait a while. Yeah. Yeah. And Tim says he's a participant. So I may follow back up with him and see if we can get him on the show. A participant. Really? So he has his own yeah. car. I don't know. I'm going to have to day. I'm going to reach out to him and find out more details. So oh, yeah. But that'd be amazing. That's super cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. And then Stomp, I just noticed that Kathleen does not have, a, she's not a cat person, but she's got a little dog there. <laughs> yeah, we heard the pup. <laughs> you, have, you have two. Yes. Oh, you got the chihuahuas. Yes. They're not search and rescue chihuahuas. <laughs> they're not. They're yeah. not. Wow. What, are they, what are their names, Kathleen? Uh, I have Patches and Pilot, and they're from uh, Mexico. They're from Mexico. Are they the type of chihuahuas that bark all the time or are they no. well-behaved? No, they are not. So They're not well-behaved or they no, don't bark? <laughs> they bark a lot and uh, they chase away the bears though. So they do their job and the deer. So um, they're not well-behaved at all. They're completely oh, no. spoiled. Yep. Wow. And you don't have any cats? I'm allergic to cats. So You are? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. t- Kathleen, tell the listeners where you're calling in from. I am calling from Gibson's, uh, BC. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not an island. Yeah, British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, Canada. Uh, you know, it's north of y'all. And, oh, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, and we have a good connection. Yeah, and it's bright and sunny today. We're transitioning from avalanche season to hiking season 
we just uh, we've had the worst avalanche season in 20 years. So about a, um, I'm not sure what the death count is. I think it's up to 14 or something. Oh uh, yeah, people are going in the backcountry and ignoring all the avalanche warnings. And yeah, some mm. pretty horrific accidents have happened, including two uh, guides. So oh, wow. no guarantee. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, I've written lots of stuff on it and presented um, lots of safety things. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't wait to talk about it. What, just one quick thing. When you say bears, are you talking grizzly or what kind no. of bear do you have? <laughs> we have black bears here. Okay, okay. Just we ha- well, I wouldn't live here if we had grizzly bears. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm terrified of grizzly bears. I grew up on the prairies where there are grizzly bears in Waterton Park and that sort of thing. I've seen them. I would not live here if we had grizzly bears. Okay. No. <laughs> or you need, at least need bigger dogs. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> True. Need a bigger, yeah, need a bigger dog because, like, uh, I don't know. The black bears are afraid of these tiny little chihuahuas, so they think they're. You know, Isn't that funny? I, it's it is hilarious to see these two little guys out there chasing away, you know, a thousand pound bear. So, all right, well, sit tight. Mm-hmm. We've got some more dog stories to uh, to add in a moment. But stop. Just <laughs> um, a couple of things here that I wanted to cover. One is uh, congratulations to all of the AMC award recipients. Um, their award ceremony was on Saturday, April 22nd. So I had a couple of shout outs that I wanted to give. I think Beth Lynn and Mindy, who are friends of the show and friends of mine, I think they received their awards for completing the 4,000 footer list. And then Mike and Tom, I'm assuming they received their reward, awards for the single season winter 48. And then I saw some pictures of Littlefoot mm-hmm. also received an award. So I don't know if there's anybody you knew that, that got something. I honestly, I, I saw so many people. I can't even begin, but there's just too many. So congrats to everybody. I mean, that was such a special time going to that award ceremony for myself and Mrs. Stomp. And Mike, you went, didn't you? No, I haven't gone because I um, was in Florida. It's so special. I didn't go last year because I I was, yeah, I was too late to go last year. And then um, this year I was in Florida. So I'm hoping that I can just go when my daughter finishes her 4,000 footer list. So, Oh, that'd be really sweet. Yeah. Yeah, We'll see. It's a great time. Yeah. And then, so congratulations to that. And then I also pulled another inspirational hiking story stomp for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one is out of Pennsylvania and it's related to a gentleman that's a triple crown hiker, uh, which means that uh, when we say triple crown, we're talking about the long long distance hiking. They've completed the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide and the Pacific Crest Trail. So um, this is out of Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania um, mm-hmm. hiker Todd Gladfelter gazed upon a vista that is once that once seemed that he would never see again. So 16 months prior, Gladfelter had fell from the roof of his black shop, a uh, blacksmith shop in East Bruns- Brunswick Township, not far from uh, Hawk Mountain. So he was partially paralyzed and didn't think he was going to ever be able to walk again. But on Sunday, uh, Gladfelter <laughs> made his way up a winding 900 foot long trail to summit Hawk Mountain. 
Um, and there was a whole bunch of people there. I think about 75 family members and friends celebrated him making it up the hike. And there's a good picture of him. He looks like an old mountaineer and he's got a walker. Yep. With the wheels he's making his way out. up there. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. So how many yeah, miles? Was, I guess he had some friends that had hiked with him. Oh, I, I don't even know how long it is. It's maybe a couple of miles, but he had yeah. a couple of friends that had hiked the Appalachian Trail with him in like the 80s that showed up to uh, to celebrate. So yeah. it's pretty good. That's amazing. So inspiring. I envision you stomp when, you're, uh, when your hip replacement <laughs> goes out. You'll be doing this when you're that age and I'll be yeah. there to meet you. Yeah. Oh, I'd, I'd appreciate that. It could be any day now. Have you heard of Molly's Reach and no, the beach, no, beachcombers? No. Okay, that's what where no. I'm from is. Uh, it's very famous for that, the home of the beachcombers. Mm-hmm. And what it, what are the what are beachcombers? Uh, the beachcombers was a TV series. Um, okay. So yeah, you might um, look that up. It was on the CBC. Okay. Yeah, so, check it out. Um, yeah. So it kind of looks like uh, Maine here. You know, it's really beautiful on the sea and, you know, sailboats and that sort of thing. So some of your listeners will know all about the beachcombers and uh, Nicodonidus and Relic and all those characters and the um, landmark Molly's Reach restaurant. So I can go eat at Molly's every day if I want. So wait a minute. Is, is beachcombers a play on BC or is it totally separate? Um, well, beachcombers, uh, there, is, there are people who do beachcombing. And so what they do is they capture logs um, and they salvage them and sell them for money. So that's what beachcombers okay. do. So, oh, yeah. So this was a TV series. It's yeah. It just celebrated its 50th anniversary last year. I mean, it's not on, CBC anymore, but um, yeah, my writers group we had a big contest and everything, and celebrated it. And Jackson Davies was one of the co-writers and an ac- actor. He played an RCMP officer called Constable Constable, and uh, yeah, he's still very much promoting the show. So yeah, so that's what we're famous for in Gibson's so, here on so- Sunshine Coast. Kathleen, you have to give our listeners the nomenclature of Canada. So when you say CBC, that is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation? Canada Broadcasting Corporation. Yes, that's right. It's um, kind of like the BBC. And then the Royal... Canadian Mounted Police. Yes, yes. There we go. So (laughs) the Mounties... (laughs) You have to remember we're we're uh, New Englanders. <laughs> the beachcombing thing is interesting. I've watched um, Big Timber on Netflix, and it is interesting to see them sort of wrapping these chains around the big logs and mm-hmm. trying to pull them out to the water and the investment in money that they have for the, the equipment, for the boating, uh, the gas that they have to spend on these things and then also just to sort of logistically get these logs off of the shore like some of them are like thousands and thousands of pounds and they have these like boats that are like ripping ripping themselves apart trying to get the boats get trying to get the logs off the beaches yes well uh relic mm. had a um uh jet boat i think they all had jet boats or tugboats or that sort of thing so 
But I yeah. have not watched Big Timber, but it sounds like they are beachcombers. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, but next story stop we have here. This is breaking dog news. So um, Woof the Pug becomes the first pug to complete this pug. So this is the type of dog um, is the first pug to complete the 4,000 footer list, which is hiking all 48 4,000 footers in New Hampshire. So congratulations wow. to Woof and congratulations to his mom, Erin. And it appears that Woof has either a brother or a sister pug that's also working on finishing their 4,000 footer list. So number two should be done soon enough. Uh, but also when Aaron had posted a congratulations to Woof on one of the Facebook groups, and interestingly enough, <laughs> a um, another person chimed in by the name of Kelsey, and she was like, hey, I also have a pug named Kevin that's working his way through the 4,000-footer list, and Kevin mm-hmm. is like at 24 right now. So Aaron and Kelsey, who are the owners of the two dogs, Wolf and Kevin, have made like a connection, and they may start like hiking together and building like a, a pug army alliance to take over the 4,000 footers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Little pug. Little pugs. Because typically pugs are not known as a hiking dog. Typically pugs are the type of dogs where you stick them under the table during Pack the holidays them. and just feed them food and they get really fat and they don't move around too much. Right. So was there a, uh, like a special pack for the dog or... Were they walking? Yeah, no, they were hiking the whole time. They That's hike on their own. Impressive. Wow. Yeah. They're like jacked up little um, pugs. <laughs> Pack-a-paw might have to make a special uh, <laughs> like harness for these little pugs in case they get in yeah, trouble. Yeah. Well, the thing about these dogs is they're small, but they're like, they're, um, what do you call it? They're dense. So they're like, they may look small, but they're usually pretty heavy. So, uh, but it's impressive because usually these pugs are not, you know, they're not built for endurance. So that was pretty cool. And she's getting a lot of press. She had articles in the Boston Globe and WMUR and all over the place. Hmm. That's cool. Congrats. Yep. Congratulations to Woof and good luck to Kevin and (laughs) Woof's sister or brother. Go get it. So, um, all right, so up next up is um, Al, our friend Al had sent over an article from Garmin. So Garmin put together a blog post where they took data insights from 10,000 individual Garmin inReach um, SOS incidents. So this goes back to 2011. Um, since 2011, they've had 10,000 individual SOS uh, events. So if you're, you have a Garmin inReach, you hit SOS. Uh, this blog post has a an overview of the locations where uh, the most frequent SOSs came from, and they called out the Pacific Crest Trail in Western U.S., the Alps in Europe, and then nearly all of New Zealand. So New Zealand's a pretty big hotspot for SOS incidents. Um, and then they also go on to break down the types of incidents. So this covers everything. It's not just hiking, but uh, 39% of the SOSs were from adventurers who were out hiking or backpacking. And then the next mm-hmm. most frequent um, SOS trigger was people driving. Oh, interesting. Which I thought yeah. was interesting. 
yeah, cars and motorcycles. And then there's, they have a separate segment for climbing and mountain, uh, mountaineering and then boating and snowmobiling are the next big, big bucket ones. But, um, Mm -hmm. but pretty interesting. They talk about how, um, you know, why people are triggering SOSs. So it's about, I think 30% overall are injuries and then mm-hmm. um, 17% are medical injury, uh, med- medical issues. Interesting. And then the next big buckets are vehicle accidents, being stranded or stuck, and then just general vehicle issues where your, your vehicle breaks down. Interesting split between the uh, injuries and the medical. Fairly even. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's almost 50% of the calls when you look at the total number, but it's you yeah. know, more for injuries and a little less for uh, medical incidents. And then they talk about like, who are the people triggering it, whether you're by yourself, whether you're with a party, whether you're doing it on behalf of somebody. So um, it shows that about... Two thirds of the incidents where an SOS is triggered, it's triggered by the person that's having the issue or someone with their party. And then the remaining right. uh, third are just third party people that have to walk up or happen mm-hmm. to walk up and say like, oh yeah, you've got a problem. I've got an in-reach. So it's pretty okay. interesting. So 10,000 SOS calls to in-reach for the last like 11 years. <laughs> Isn't that incredible to think about? Wow. It is. It is. You got to wonder how many people's lives were saved because of those, you know, having that technology. Yeah. And then that question of how much risk will a person take if they know that they can press a button? There's that whole whole other angle too. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see them keep some sort of like a live uh, tracking of this stuff, but I think that they they probably don't want to keep that going for... It's nice for them to push out a blog every once in a while, but I don't think that they want to keep any live dashboards going, but I would like them to. Mm -hmm. Okay. So next up here, Stomp, we've got an event coming up with Ty Gagne and James Osborne. So Ty had mentioned this event at the 100th episode we had at Eastern Mountain Sports. So um, this event is on May 11th from 4 to 6 p.m. It's in Clements Hall at Kobe Sawyer College. Um, you do have to RSVP yeah. and the website is now available to, um, to RSVP. Yeah, Mike, you so, can, you can hold it. I just looked and it's sold out. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. It's completely sold out. So basically we have Ty talking with James Osborne, the survivor who is, uh, talked about in the story itself so uh it's the first time that james is out there talking and uh boy it sold out fast 100 percent of the profits are going to nehsa uh, which is new england healing sports association and we're actually going to have them on soon to talk so it should be a really nice time as a matter of fact i think they're booked for the week before this this discussion so but yeah newsflash it is sold out Wow, that went quick. I wonder if maybe they'll expand the uh, yeah. the the size of the location and add some more. If there are, if there are, there is more additional seats available, we'll let people know. But otherwise, like it's going to be a good event. Good for you. They got in on it. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, we plugged it a couple times. So yeah, yeah, excellent. 
All right. Um, and then Stump, you want to do this one to give the latest and greatest update on the missing hiker that um, that's in Japan that uh, we somebody had reached out to us to ask us to get the word out on this one? Well, just really briefly, the search is ongoing as far as I understand. Um, the husband has come out to talk about um, his missing wife. And this is Patricia Wu Murad, who went hiking in Japan. And this link that we'll, we will provide you goes into some details about where she was staying. Apparently, she was staying at a uh, hostel. And the only witness to see her leave was the hostel owner, apparently. So... Apparently, she's very, very experienced, um, has hiked many, many very challenging hikes. And um, the last person to see her go was this hostel owner, and uh, she's just been missing. Uh, so the search continues, unfortunately. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed on this one, but it doesn't sound good when time goes by. Exactly. It's not your friend. Awful. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. Um, all right, Stomp, and then you also wanted to give a shout out to uh, your local cobbler. Yeah, Dobbs. You know, we talked about uh, Limmer recently, and um, just so people know, Dobbs is in Laconia, and they are a full-service cobbler. I, I brought my A-Solo leather boots down to get refurbished and resold, and when I got the boots back, I was blown away. I was so happy. You know, reasonable prices. It just extended the, the life of my boots for another season or two. So, uh, Dobbs, D-A-U-B-S, and... Um, yeah, you can't go wrong. They can handle anything that you're uh, looking to get fixed. Stomp loves his boots. Oh my God, yeah. I'm, I, I swear to God, I love these boots so much. They're so great. Leather boots are so fantastic anyway. It's like they just fit to your foot. No surprises. The only thing that goes, obviously the sole, depending on how much wear and tear you put on them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm more of a trail runner guy myself, but I uh, I do appreciate a good pair of boots in the winter. So Oh, sure. Excellent. All right. So this next one, Stomp, this is an interesting story and I'm really going to be interested to get your take on this. So mm. I, I've been out in the Pacific Northwest quite a bit. So I, luckily enough for work, I was able to do a number of work trips over the last five years where I spent some time in San Francisco. I spent some time in Seattle and I've spent some time in Portland. And in every one of those trips, I was able to get outside of the, the cities and do a little bit of hiking and and, and navigate around the area, particularly up in Seattle and Portland. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't been to either one of those cities in the last probably three or four years. Obviously, like I think I've heard, a, I've seen a lot in the news around the fact that, you know, the, the, the downtown sections of those particular cities have gotten more and more challenging around crime, homelessness. Mm -hmm. And the latest trend seems to be a lot of these stores are getting like shoplifting issues and things like that. So sure. this, this story came over REI's flagship store in Portland will be closing due to record crime and safety concerns. Now, there are REI stores outside of Portland itself. So it's not, REI is not completely shutting down. It's just you got to go to the suburbs now. Uh, but it's an interesting story. And I wonder whether or not we might see any of this continue to um, spread out to other cities? Because it's just shocking to me that like Portland, Oregon would be the last place I would think that REI would ever shut down, but it must be getting rough out there if they've got to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. I mean, all I can say is that 
this is not the only city that is experiencing trouble. I mean, you've got Austin, Baltimore, all these major cities. Minus Boston, I mean, I have not heard any issues out of Boston, but a lot of the cities are just struggling with crime. And um, I guess you just have to look at the policies that are being put forth by bureaucrats, politicians, perhaps. I really don't know. It's very complicated, but it seems to be growing. It's a growing trend, I don't know, probably since, what, 2020, 2021? Uh, It's sad to see. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... It seems as though there's like this trend towards um, not prosecuting people for minor shoplifting, which in theory seems like, okay, yeah, Mm. people make a mistake. You want to give them a break and you don't want to go too hard on it. But I think it's something, it's the same thing with like, you know, people you're struggling with addiction or other things, or, you know, even you, you're dealing with your own kids, like sometimes being more. I guess aggressive towards these smaller incidents is better because it sets the tone to say like, look, you can't get away with the big stuff. And, you know, it sounds like this, this approach may not be working very well in Portland. So, but it's sad. I mean, Portland's a beautiful city. I love the place when I went out there. I love Seattle when I went out there and the hiking is, is gorgeous. I just, you know, I would think twice maybe about going out there and staying in the cities. Uh, if I was going to travel, I might just fly right in and head right out to the, um, Matter of fact, I am doing that when I go to Yosemite. We're not going to stay in the San Francisco. We're just going heading right to uh, the park. We're not going to mess around in the city at this point. Mm. Yeah, I think like, who is it? Ted Wheeler, who's the mayor here? I mean, he he's like a living yo-yo. I, I remember him talking about decreasing policing and stuff like that. Now he's saying the exact opposite thing. I mean, clearly there has to be some... Uh, law enforcement on the streets and and whether it's a matter of staffing or funding, who knows, but I mean, it's just clearly not happening right now. Officer stomp, get down there and take care of business. (laughs) No, thanks. I'm excited to go to Seattle. It's going to be my first American book launch. So I'm going to the university of Washington bookstore Oh, nice. So hopefully I will survive that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, Seattle is like a, I had such a good time in Seattle and I don't know what it's like (laughs) down there, but, um, you know, the, I remember going to the REI in Seattle and it was like fantastic. I think it's like two stories. It's like, it's going into like this, it has this, like (laughs) these trees and like a, like a, um, these wooden walkways you're up high it's it's really a cool cool place yeah i'm they they Hmm. uh rejected carrying my book but i still love them oh how dear they (laughs) i know right come on interesting oh my goodness so we'll have to talk more about that if you're you're listening They do listen to the show, so maybe we'll they'll, they'll revisit it. But um, but speaking of writing, stop our friend Keith Gentili. Um, so this is another writer, Kathleen, that um, had written a book specifically about um, um, you know the the Hampshire region. Here, he's going to be doing a talk on Sunday, April thirtieth. He'll be in Conway at the Majestic Theater for the Cold River Radio Show at seven p.m. So. Um, Keith had sent us a note and said it's a unique event billed as a live stage variety show featuring award-winning New England-based <laughs> artists, performers, storytellers, comedians, and best-selling authors. 
Like vaudeville. A variety show. It's so funny. And next, it's Keith Gentilly. (laughs) Is Keith the only one there or is there going to be other people? (laughs) He's going to stand up show. I would love to come out there and read. I haven't found a place. (laughs) Kathleen, you should should move. You got to live up here. It's beautiful in New England. Yeah, come on down. It's great. Whistler, come on. How I mean, <laughs> why would I move? I mean, I, I've got a place on the North Shore. True, true. Well, you can come you can come visit New Hampshire and maybe you'll change your mind. You'll fall in love. I've never, I've never been. Yeah. I, I don't know where to find it on oh. a map. I would have to look. <laughs> but I would love to come and do an event. So anyone in New Hampshire with a book or or anything listening, come invite me. Well, well next wow. time we do a live show, maybe we'll we'll entice you to come in. Oh, so no, that would be no that question. would be very cool. Awesome, that would work. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Excellent. All right. I love that. All right, stop. So the next thing, and Kathleen, you may be interested in this one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I pulled this story off of the Unresolved Mysteries um, mm-hmm. subreddit on Reddit, and um, this gentleman, the user's name is. Um, after Andalasia, so uh, I don't know who it is, but he he or she did this write up about the twenty uh, two thousand six uh, climbing um, situation with Lincoln Hall. So this was a case where um, there was a particular focus on Mount Everest. So in nineteen ninety six, obviously there was the big uh, year where we had a lot of deaths up up top in the high camps, but. After that, things had settled down, but around 2004, 2005, there was a climber by the name of David Sharp, who was a British climber on Mount Everest that um, had become, I guess, lost and uh, or injured, and a number of climbers had passed David Sharp by when they were hiking. So the, and the issue was is that he was actually alive People didn't uh, stop to help him come down. They just went and summited, and then pa- they were like, we'll get him when we come back. But by that time, he had died. So there's a lot of focus on Mount Everest at the time. And around the same time, there was a, uh, a climb by the, I think it's called the F- S7 um, Climbing, or Seven Summits Club, I think, was the the guide service. Lincoln Hall was mm. one of the climbers that had set off around midnight on May 22nd. Uh, he was part of a climbing group that had, I think, two or three climbers, a guide, and about four Sherpas. And um, during the the descent, Hall had experienced issues. First of all, he had lost his sense of time. He lost his awareness. Um, had some struggles going over the one of the steps to get down to the the high camp where you're sort of safe. So I think he had summited around nine in the morning on that day, struggled to get down, had struggled with his oxygen, ended up uh, by, I think, four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, it was two Sherpas with him. They were struggling and kind of forced to continue to send, descend on their own um, for their own safety. And eventually, the Sherpers, there were some Sherpers that had remained with him, but by seven o'clock, they couldn't get Hall to respond. Um, they couldn't get him to speak. They shook him. They pinched him. He didn't respond at all. And because of this, they've basically faced this difficult stretch. They had to leave him alone. 
Um, at the time, Hall had sort of been hallucinating. He said later on that he had sort of recognized that he was on a mountainside, but he couldn't remember exactly what he was thinking. Um, I, apparently, he had sit he had sat down cross legged instead of laying down. He sat cross legged and he was doing some movements with his arms to sort of try to keep some heat going in there. Um, but they just assumed that he would die. So they reached out to his family at the time and said, like, look, there's been a big issue. He's still up there. He's not coming down. Um, so the family was notified. The Sherpers were sort of like, you know, let's regroup and go back up and see if we can find him the next day. Um, around dawn that morning, there was four climbers from another group that actually went and reached the first step to find Hall sitting cross-legged in the snow. His arms were out of hmm. the suit. He had no gloves on. Face mask was at his feet. He could talk a little bit, uh, but I guess he was hallucinating again. So they were able to give him warm liquid. They got some of his gear back on him, clipped him into a fixed rope. They abandoned their pursuit to summit that day. And um, a couple more Sherpas arrived with oxygen, and then they all worked to escort him down. So eventually, when he was coherent, the frostbite on his fingers made it difficult for him to work the harness, but he was able to do what he needed to do to get down. Um, more and more Sherpas started uh, coming up to help and retrieve additional items to help with it. And eventually, he ended up um, getting getting down. He lost eight fingertips, his right toe to frostbite. He lost 35 pounds. And, you know, he thinks that he went through some stages of death. You know, Buddhists believe that there's like eight stages of death. So he had a paralyzed vocal cord for some months. And, you know, he wrote two books, I think, about the, the situation. But I saw the story and it was an amazing write-up. So I'll link this in the show notes. Um, but they talk about some contributing factors on what may have resulted in Hall surviving this. Mild weather. So a couple of things they talk about, the quality of the mountaineering gear. Yep, mild weather. Um, I think that him sitting upright instead of laying down might have contributed as well because if you figure if he's laying down across his whole body, then he's exposing his co- to the cold directly, whereas he was only just sort of on the bottom of his body. So maybe that helped a little bit. Um, he mm-hmm. just had, he was sort of a, like a, a very strong-willed person already. But yeah, I think overall that was like, there was no gear force winds and by Everett's stand, Everett standards, it was, you know, not super cold. So pretty interesting. Mm. Absolutely. Mine's, reminds me of uh, Beck Weathers. He survived as well in extraordinary circumstances. Same thing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it just shows you that, you know, you think, we always talk about how critical time is, but I think when it comes to these cold weather situations, sometimes the cold weather can act to sort of slow things down and maybe you have more time than you think when, um, Mm -hmm. when people are in those situations. So. Yeah, movement up. movement is key. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, but this this thread is amazing, and yeah, and I'll I'll put this in the show notes so people can check it out because he's got a bunch of sources that he links to, and you can really do a deep dive on this. Um, and particularly, like the other thing that he talked about in his write up is he said because of what happened with David Sharp and how people had walked by him, and that had become like national news. 
that a lot of the guides that were working on Everest at the time mm-hmm. and a lot of the hikers were super sensitive about any perception that they would leave somebody to die. So that may have also mm-hmm. factored into the fact that like, okay, maybe they wouldn't have done so much effort to get Lincoln Hall back down if what happened to David Sharp hadn't happened. I remember reading a story about a climber that was left in a cave by his group. Do you remember reading about that? And they yes. went on without yep. him. And he's still sure there, right? He's still in the cave. Yeah, Correct. Yeah, there's a number of um right. yeah, there's a number of like well-known climbers that are still up there, which is crazy. I mean, what kind of group leaves someone behind like that? Like that I thought that was the ethos of climbing Climbing, hiking, whatever you're doing, a kayaking, you don't leave anyone behind. So that one was quite shocking to me. Yeah. And we cover so many stories where people break those rules. And um, there was, I think in your, you know, we'll cover this, um, I think in your book, but there was, um, or maybe it's a, maybe it's a story that's coming up, but I have one that I pulled up where, mm-hmm. matter of fact, I think it's, it's in our search and rescue news where a group did separate and, um, it didn't didn't turn out well. I, I think that's one of the questions mm-hmm. they ask. Like, if you want to go into search and rescue, and you're a member, and you want to be a member in training, I think that's one of the questions they probably ask: is what would you do in this case? Would you, you know, would you separate? Like, how would you um, manage this situation? And you know, so I think that's one of those core questions and management techniques in search and rescue. I could be wrong. You know, I'm in civil air search and rescue, so you can't really leave anyone out of the airplane. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You remember um, Nims Nims Die, the the 14 Peaks uh, show mm-hmm. on Netflix? How in the middle of that trek they experienced a rescue? Yes. I mean, I wonder if that somewhat changed the perception of the ability to rescue people in those dire extreme elevation rescue situations. Um, very curious about that. From what I understand, they, the person that they attempted to rescue died after that because of his injuries. But um, it's certainly planted the, the impression that it's possible to rescue people in those situations. But it, there's a lot of debate about that. You know, you, I think a lot of people, I mean, Kathleen, you mentioned the person that was in the cave, you know, to, to mm-hmm. forego the summit for a rescue in a situation like that could very well put your, your life at risk. And I think that's sort of the, the primary ethos up there is that, Hey, you signed up for this. I, you know, if I try to help you, I'm going to die as well. And I don't know if that's changed up there. No, but I mean. They had the choice, like you said, you can summit or you can save someone's life. Right. But with, but my, my point is that NIMS tried and it didn't work out too well. And I think at 14,000 feet, I think is the question. Like, what can you really realistically do up there at that height? That I guess that's the, the open question. I mean, that's a great point, but I think they came back down, they summited and they came back down. Right. And if I remember correctly, they just walked past him without even checking. Yeah. Very tragic. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right, Stomp. So next up here, we have your DJing schedule for the summer. So uh, not only is Stomp a, a podcaster and a rescue and a hiker guy, he's got the DJing schedule. So what's going on here? Well, uh, let's see. First of all, we have um, 
some White Mountains Endurance events coming up. We have the White Lake Ultras on the May May 6th and 7th. And, uh, you know, I'm spinning music for all these and just um, doing some announcements and things like that. And the Chikora Mountain Race is June 3rd. Race the Cog, June 24th. Jigger Johnson is May 18th, and that's a 50-meter, 100K, 100-miler. Um, and then Kilkenny is in September. And then finally, the uh, 48 Peaks Alzheimer's event at Reckless um, is June 10th. So keep a lookout. I'll be just spinning some music there and um, hope to see you. Come up and say hi. If Do you do weddings and birthday parties and graduations? I, I will, but I don't look for that type of work because it, they're very particular and specific. And I, I like to play music that I like to listen myself and I don't like to listen to wedding music. <laughs> uh, Let's just okay. put it that way. <laughs> All right. So you don't, you don't want to do like cool in the gang and, uh, <sighs> I'd rather freeze to death on a mountain than do that. Let's just say really? that. No, I, yeah. So you wouldn't sell out your principles for money just to play a little cool in the gang and like, uh, all that disco music. I mean, money for a friend. Yeah, I guess I'll do it, but I don't know if you, if you get to see me do my thing this summer, you'll understand it's, it's completely different. Um, so yeah. Why do you have somebody in mind and somebody well, getting married? I, I, get, I got, I got graduation next year, so I got oh. a double graduation. So I may have to knock on your door. Okay. You're okay. going to have to play cool I, in the gang for me. I could do that for you. I would do that. <laughs> Whatever you guys want, I'll do it. That's that's uh, totally we'll cool. See. We'll see. I'll feed you. I'll feed you. We'll get it catered. So anyway, um, but continue with your sponsors. Yeah. So we have Sweet Beginnings Daycare. Uh, they're a New Hampshire state licensed child care provider that offers care for children from six weeks to 12 years with flexibility and before and after school care as well. Sweet Beginnings aims to instill a love for learning by providing a safe and positive experience with a loving and warm environment. And they believe this is a good foundation to teach children in order to prepare them for their future. For more information, contact Sweet Beginnings at 603-568-4530 Visit them at Sweet Beginnings Daycare on Facebook or email Shandy at Shandy Elliott at Outlook.com. And then we have Vaucluse Gear, the makers of this super cool ventilation backpack frame. So um, do you want ventilation and less sweat on your back when backpacking? Check out... You do. Yes, so do I. (laughs) Check out Vaucluse's backpack ventilation gear. Back sweat sucks in all types of weather and hikes. It's uncomfortable and a risk factor causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back. Vaucluse's ultralight ventilation backpack frame is an accessory that installs in your favorite pack 18 liters up to 55 liters, creating a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. So therefore less sweat and less damp yuck. So they are releasing their Generation 2 frame now, and it weighs only four ounces for you backpackers and handles the heaviest pack loads. Whether you're in hot or cold temps or have a pack with a curved frame, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer for ventilation and airflow. So visit ValcluseGear.com to order a ventilation frame today. 
Vaucluse is a fan and sponsor of this very podcast. Go figure, huh? Use promo code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, for a $10 discount. I got to tell you, I I get emails from um, Vaucluse every time one sold using the Slasher code and we're code and we're getting hit like a couple of day. It's super cool. So thank you everybody for um, hitting up these sponsors of ours. Um, let's see stickers. As you know, ski fanatics, you can get a whole bunch. You, we've got the little minis for cell phones. We got the big car ones now. And of course, dolls and pops in Andover at Spinner's Pizza Parlor off of uh, Dascom Road. And uh, if anybody's interested, you can always advertise with us. We have a bunch of different programs and uh, plat, uh, packages that you can use uh, to get your word out there and your product out there. So yeah, that's it. Very good. Stop where you've been. Any recent hikes? Recent hikes, yes. Well, uh, Mrs. Stomp and I, uh, she did some some research off of a new site that I'm not too familiar with, but it's called nhfamilyhikes.com. And it's a super cool website for families and uh, for younger kids that might not want to tackle the 4Ks or some of these more demanding hikes, but you know they have a, a find a hike page, they have articles, they have quest pages, and uh, Mrs. Stomp did some homework and found a hike in Meredith called Mount Lad or Lad Mountain, which is L-A-D-D Mountain. It's about 1,300 feet high, and it's uh, it's unmarked, so you have to drive up about two miles up off Chemung Road, which is C-H-E-M-U-N-G. And it takes you up to a picnic table that overlooks the Lakes region and Gunstock and the Bel- Belknaps and Alton Bay. It's just, it's a Southern view, but it's absolutely beautiful up there. And the whole hike, you know, I, I, I was just floored because some of these hikes, generally I can draw a parallel between other hikes I've done. Like, oh, this reminds me of the Wildcats or this reminds me of this and that. But I could not draw a parallel with this trail. It was just absolutely beautiful and unique in its own way. So it's a little hidden gem. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. So is this website, by the way. Isn't it's it like, neat? It's got a really, yeah, it's like, it's an old interface, but it's cool. It's got like this little drop down where it can say like, okay, select your region. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to hike in the seacoast and it'll say like, okay, what are the features? Do you want waterfalls or bogs or oh, it's forest great. or ponds or views? And then um, it'll give you the level to say like, okay, I want a beginner, easy, moderate, whatever. Yeah. And then you can just hit search and then it'll give you a whole list of uh, different hikes that you can do depending on, you know, what you select. So it's, it's great. Yes. Good job, Mrs. Stomp. She set us up big time. Yes. I always count on Mrs. Stomp. Yep. And they have all the quests. So they have like the 4,000 footers. They got the 52 with a view, the Belknap 12, fire towers, mm-hmm. everything, which is great. Yeah, it's great. How about yeah. you, Mike? It's got a whole You've list on the fire south. towers. Oh, yeah, I've that's been right. Doing, I've been doing anything, Stomp. Shame. I'm going to hit the bell naps this weekend. I'm going to be going to the Shame. northern end of it. I've got to get like Gunstock and Piper and bell nap and okay. Um, I don't know how many I got left. I may be able to finish out the 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 summit list this weekend. I may have a couple of holes in the middle that I got to finish up. So we'll see. Gotcha. And that's exactly what this place, Lad Mountain, looks out on. It's really neat. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And then I think we're heading over to uh, start opening up the place in Maine. 
And then once that's opened up, I'm going to be spending some more time in Evans Notch this summer. I'm going to be available to help the family uh, get some of their 4,000-footer list done. I want to reach out, Stomp, mm-hmm. me and you want to do that. Adam Slide might reach out to, uh, to Redline to see if they want to collaborate on that. And then oh, sure. um, maybe some re- returning to the Great Gulf and King Ravine and a couple of other places. You mean like Mike Cherum or? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, say hi for me. Yeah, I oh, will. I'll have to tell us how you know Mike in a few moments. <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Well, I don't know him personally, but I mean, he's in well, the he book. Yeah, so he's Mike in the book. <laughs> is one of the um, subjects. Yeah, he's in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is good. So we'll talk about gotcha. that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's it, Stomp. Then I've got like, I think I've got a presidential traverse lined up with you and Nobby. And then who knows? I got all kinds of things planned. Excellent. Well, um, just a, a couple notable hikes here, and then we are going to move on to our interview with Kathleen. So, uh, notable hikes. If you want to be a notable listener hike of the week, then just tag Slasher on your Instagram post, and we'll give you a plug. So, we have Vicky Takes a Hike. April is gridded and 80 to go for the grid. Oh, boy. And then Dave shits in the woods and Mrs. Shits visited Sculptured Rocks after they heard our little episode uh, a couple weeks ago on Sculptured Rocks and they uh, had a nice time out there. So there you go. Thanks guys for tagging us. We appreciate it very much. And uh, I guess I guess this one goes out to uh, Vicky for gritting. My God. <laughs> I, can't, I still yeah, can't impressive. comprehend doing that. What, what is gritting? I don't know what gritting is. This is all new language. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we have to explain our language. So, sure. in New Hampshire, it's a very list-based um, hiking culture. So, we have um, mm-hmm. these list of summits. So, we have the the main list is called the 4,000-footer list. So, there's 48 peaks that are, below, wow. that are above 4,000 feet. And it may not sound like that big of a deal, but it's... You know, they start low, so we our net gain is pretty close to what you find out west a lot of times, but maybe not in BC, but in Colorado. Um, so gridding, most people will try to do all 48 summits over the course of X number of years. Mm-hmm. Gridding basically means that you do each of the 48 summits every month out of the year. Um, so it essentially means that you've done the 48 4,000 footers for every month out of the year. So that's like 576 summits that you have to do. So every month people will work on gridding out a particular peak. And when you grid out a particular peak, that means you've done it 12 times across every month of the year. (laughs) Uh, What about the avalanche months? So avalanche months here, we only have like, there's only particular areas where you have to worry about um, avalanches. So most of the summits that are on the list, you can hike them relatively safely without being exposed to any avalanche risk. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah, one example would be a mountain called North Tri-Pyramid, which has a giant, you know, 50 degree slide of granite all the way to the summit, but you don't have to do that. You could take a trail that is parallel to it. So there's always options, but then, you know, if you were to try to tackle, say, Mount Washington via Mm -hmm. 
Tuckerman's Ravine, then you have to consider avalanche risks. Yeah. So it depends. Yeah. But that's so gritting. And then um, we also have like, so redlining is known as basically hiking every trail within the White Mountain um, National Forest Guidebook. And you, you basically mark down on a spreadsheet that you've completed all these trails and that's called redlining. So we also do that. So we're very like, we gamify our hikes out here quite a bit. So you'll hear these weird terms that are like, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it might be our equivalent to park bagging or something. Probably. Yeah, yeah I yeah. would think so. So we have um, two sponsors before we get rolling here. So Zero Waste Instant Coffee by CS Instant Coffee. They come in compostable packets, perfect for the trail and home. Each packet makes about 20 ounces of coffee, so you can take one of them on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. Put it in your backpack, find some hot water, and you're good to go. Learn more by going to our show notes or Google CS Instant Coffee. CS Instant dot coffee. And then Baselate Coasters. Base Lake Coasters create unique, beautiful, functional, and expertly laser-engraved coasters with topographic maps of the 4,000-footers of New Hampshire and more. These coasters are handmade on Cape Cod from slate, cored in the U.S., and provide a durable and heat-resistant surface for your drinks. Each coaster features intricate detailing of any mountain topography for the location of your choice. Base Slate Coasters will work with you on your custom hand-designed coasters for any street or topographic map. Let's just say anywhere on earth or beyond. Visit Baselate.com today to explore a full range of topographic map coasters and use the code SLASHER10 at checkout for 10% off of your first order. That's S-L-A-S-R-10. Very good stop. I, I, I'm really serious about my coffee. Like we're a real <laughs> coffee culture here. I mean, oh, I bet. is it the same in New Hampshire? I think yeah, so. For sure. I would say so. Like uh, I, roast, I roast my own beans. I mean, I'm pretty serious. Oh, yeah. I'm not that hardcore about it, but I, I definitely like my coffee. I've been stepping back a little bit. Haven't been drinking as much, but yeah, there's there's definitely a bunch of coffee groupies around here in New England, for sure. Pour mm. over, you know. I write in coffee shops, and it's like the whole culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm more of a Keurig type of person myself, but um, if somebody wants to do the pour over stuff, although I will say when when we go hiking, my friend Jonathan brings his press, and there is nothing better in this world than waking up in a cold after doing a cold winter overnight and jonathan has his um his coffee press and the hot coffee and like it's just so such a strong bitter coffee not bitter but strong coffee it just wakes you right up and makes makes the winter hike really enjoyable yeah we should all have a jonathan yes (laughs) oh boy so kathleen are you ready for your interview uh i thought this was it i thought we've been doing it all along (laughs) we eased you into it we eased you yes this is the painful part (laughs) it's not painful i've done so many it's fine yeah well i I, I usually don't get to see the people so this is great
It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, 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 very cool. Yes. So, Kathleen, Kathleen Labonte Smith is the author of Rescue Me, Behind the Scenes of Search and Rescue, and she's calling in from British Columbia, way the heck up northwest of where we are currently. And uh, we really thank you for joining us. I know it's been several months of um, Pacific. Yes, sorry. (laughs) It's been several months of waiting and waiting until your book was released here in the U.S. And since April 7th, I believe it was released. Was it the 7th? Yes. I was so excited. Yeah, that's fantastic. So this story goes back quite a ways. Uh, You and I uh, crossed paths by email. If I remember correctly, you had reached out during your early research for the book. And when did you exactly start the book? Was that 2020? Uh, You know, it it was pandemic times. So sometime during the pandy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Everybody was at home, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, captive <laughs> audience. Was going anywhere. And they, so they were born enough to talk to me. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was great. <laughs> That's excellent. So you and I, we connected because there was an email sent out to the team that I'm involved with. And um, I was actually approved to speak with you. Uh, there is a process for media outreach and things like that. And I was happy to talk with you briefly about what we do in New Hampshire. And then from there, I believe um, you had made some connections with um, some individuals that were actually part of rescue missions and things like that. And we'll talk about that. Um, so that's that's how you and I met. So I guess, why don't you tell us first a little bit about yourself and um you know, we, where you live, what your occupation is, if, you know, just how the whole writing thing came about. Sure. Um, well, uh, I've been a writer since um, I was about 16. I started writing articles um, for newspapers. So I've been a freelancer for a long time, like decades and decades. And mm-hmm. um, this is my third book. And um yeah, so I was just sitting around one day with Steve, and there's a show here called uh, North Shore uh, Rescue something or Rescue North Shore something like that. A documentary where they I don't know if you've heard of it, but mm-hmm. it's on our equivalent of PBS. Uh, it's called the Knowledge Network, and they did a documentary where they actually followed the North Shore Rescue team. Um, and it, it was fascinating. And we were sitting there and I'm like, is there a book on this? And I looked and there wasn't. And at that time, Steve was going through his MIT training, member in training with the Sunshine Coast Search and Rescue. And I thought, well, there should be a book <laughs> because a lot of people don't realize um, what the volunteers do. They don't even think about them. They They don't even... Uh, realize they're volunteers. And I don't know, Stomp, if you find that's the case with what you're doing. <laughs> I think that's a great point. And I can tell you anecdotally that I don't think many people understand that the 
bulk of the muscle is volunteer mm-hmm. here in New Hampshire um, and New England in, in particular. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's volunteer. Yeah. I think people learn that as we're, as we're carrying somebody down, inevitably there's conversation yes. and there'll be questions like, so you guys do this all the time, full time, huh? Well, I, that's crazy. Like, no, we do this volunteer. It's just, uh, you know, <laughs> when the call comes, we here we are. Yeah. So it's more or less a, a volunteer structure? Not more or less. It absolutely is. And it's 100% volunteer. Uh, yeah, totally. And, you know, I, I, part of the reason I wanted to write this book was so that people got to know who some of these people were, that they have lives, that they <laughs> have jobs to juggle. They, uh, they have spouses. Uh, hopefully the spouse will s- stick it out. Um, they have children and, you know, when people make, um, unfortunate life choices, um, you know, that they have, they're not paid to do this. They do this because they're the kind of people who run towards trouble rather than running away. I found, mm-hmm. you know, that they really want to help people. And, um, I, I felt that the public needed to know this. Because sometimes people think that they're like Uber drivers, you know, because they give them a granola bar and a drink, you know, yeah. that uh, that doesn't make them Uber drivers. They are not being paid for this. And they spend, I mean, some of them like the canine handlers spend a thousand hours a year, um, you know, training. It, it's a lifestyle, I've heard um, them say. So, Yeah. Um, sure, sure. So, yeah, and I, I'm a nonfiction writer. Um, that's what I do. And I I wasn't just content with staying in Canada, although a, a lot of my, I, uh, you know, most of my book is Canadian um, because mm-hmm. the North Shore is one of the biggest search and rescues in North America because of our terrain. We have, you know, the, the Whistler Mountains. We have the North Shore we have all all throughout BC as uh, very wild terrain, but it's within you know the the view of the city of Vancouver. Um, so people don't, and we have you know millions of tourists a year. So they they're not really familiar, and they go up and get into some trouble. But mm. some people go out of their way to get into trouble. <laughs> so would you say your book is is sort of angled towards telling the story of what it's like to be a volunteer and their struggles as well as the victims or patients? Uh, It's mostly from the point of view of the search and rescue members. That's really neat. That's cool. Yeah, there is a positive. Um, I do. uh, Yeah. Yeah. um, I do have uh, um, some interviews with survivors, mm-hmm. um, some of, you know, um, Mike has read it. So he knows that not, you know, they don't all end in a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if it's about 50, 50 that, or, or I call uh, some of the stories are 50, 50 where half of the people survive and half don't. Um, but I, I, I wrote the book so that people will, you know, reflect upon, what they do when they go out there and uh, maybe change some of their behaviors and, uh, you know, possibly um, have better outcomes to their adventures. Mm -hmm. Um, When I give uh, live events, I have this one video 
of a fellow who uh, is a base jumper. And he, <laughs> one of his, he does a lot of very strange uh, high risk behaviors. And this was off of Squamish. And the Squamish team, um, they have a lot to deal with. I don't know if you know about the Stomamish chief, but it's the uh, second largest piece of granite in the world. Um, so they have a lot of weird things happen, a lot of free, free climbers and daredevils. And he launched himself on a sled off of the chief and um, pulled his parachute and landed in, in right into a tree. So uh, I went to Squamish and gave a talk and I showed the video of him face planting into this tree. And luckily he survived. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was there with the the rescue people who <laughs> had to go rescue him. It took five hours wow. and a helicopter and a lot of rope to get him down. And I invited him to come. I said, you know, you like attention. Why don't you come and explain to us what your, what your thought processes were when you were, you know, getting on that sled. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, uh, he declined, he declined, but you know, the members that were there were part of the rescue and, they talked us through it and, you know, there's in, I don't know about New Hampshire, um, but it's free in BC to be in all of Canada to be rescued. Uh, I think Hawaii is pretty strict on how much it costs and they do bill people for being rescued. But um, yeah. so I'm, I'm not sure if New Hampshire actually enforces uh, costs. They do in certain cases. Um, we can talk about that for sure. I mean, in terms of recklessness or reckless negligence, things like that, there are cases every year where people get billed. But um, can we take a step back and just talk about British Columbia in itself and just the train that we're dealing mm-hmm. with? Because a lot of our listeners are used to 4,000 footers, you know, not so much um, the higher risk of avalanche. You know, certainly you could find it if you're in the wrong area, but it's, it's less of a risk, but uh, certainly in BC, it's a whole different world. So if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, this year we're having the worst avalanche season we've had in 20 years. Now the, if you stay within bounds, like if you're a skier or snowshoer, um, you're pretty much safe. We haven't lost anyone. Um, But if you are into heli skiing or cat skiing, uh, in the backcountry, that's where you get into trouble. And having a guide doesn't really matter because we've had incidents. I think we've lost 14 people this season, which is actually conservative compared to how it used to be. Um, because we have so much, so much better technology to predict slides. And, mm. um, but you know, people are still, it, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. Um, to take tourists out there and locals, but mostly tourists, um, to take them heli skiing. They'll save up their whole lifetime, you know, and they get there and, oh, this, this, uh, heli skiing has been shut down today because they had an avalanche yesterday and three people died, (laughs) you know, so, um, to, you know, I, I've written about it to the editor of newspapers and, you know, I've talked to the government and they just feel that, you know, people have the right to, decide for themselves if they want to take the risk. Um, you know, I, I, I would not want to be the person who was above a group that and started the avalanche and that 
took out people's lives. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So it is definitely at a high risk and it's continuing to be right now. Oh, sure. Okay. So in New Hampshire, we typically have a lot of, you know, foot soldiers just walking and climbing up to people that need rescues. Occasionally the Blackhawks come out. It seems like in BC, um, you guys are dealing with much more extreme terrain. So can you tell us about the search and rescue teams, um, the infrastructure, um, what modes might be used, whether it be snowmobile, helicopters. I mean, what are you guys seeing out there um, that we may not see here in New Hampshire? Yeah. I don't know what you have in New Hampshire. I mean, we definitely have all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have the Talon helicopters. We can call in, um, you know, the squadron 442, the military, if we need it. They can fly in all kinds of conditions. Uh, they have night vision goggles. They cost about $10,000 an hour to call in. It's similar here. The same oh, there? similar. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, we also have the civil error search and rescue, which I've just gotten involved in as a spotter. I'm still in training, so I have another training flight to do. Mm -hmm. And that's much less expensive, Uh, you know, when a plane goes down or uh, when there's a marine search uh, and rescue needed. But, yeah, I mean, we just got night vision goggles on the North Shore Rescue uh, search and rescue. Um, they have several helicopters, so they can do n- night um, rescues. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's seen as a big advantage. Uh, but I think in the states, that's been done for many years now. I correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that's been a big advantage. Mm-hmm. And they do the hoist, you know, the hoisting people up. So that's what you know. That's the cover of my book. Um, I told my publisher anything but a helicopter, <laughs> but you know that's what I got on my book because that's what that's what people think of when they think of search and rescue is people being hoisted up on a helicopter. Yeah, but I'm sure Stomp, you can tell people that that's not what the majority of rescues are like. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. I actually had some questions about like from a tourist perspective. If yes. you were going to go into Vancouver, so I'm just looking at the geography here. So Gibson's is essentially, it sounds like you have to take a, the the ferry over to your side. That's probably the most effective way to get there. But it looks like from where you are, um, you know, you're across the bay from Vancouver, like you can go due north and make your, well, before you even take the ferry, you can go due north from West Vancouver to head up into Whistler in that area or If you go from Gibson's, you can go up 101 and explore along that coast on the other side of Vancouver Island. So can you talk a little bit about like from your perspective, if you're visiting and you want to do some adventures, but mostly stick by a car, would you recommend like driving up to Whistler in that region or would you explore um, more of the, um, I think it's called the Senchelt Peninsula area? Senchelt? Yeah. you know, it depends what you want. I mean, most people go up to, um, you know, Squamish and you can climb up the back of the chief and it's beautiful. Um, it's, it, you know, it has three different routes that you can take and they vary in, um, difficulty. Um, but the view is just fabulous. Um, there's a gondola too that you can take. Okay. Uh, yeah, before you get there, uh, I forget the name of it, um, but it's a new gondola. I haven't taken it, but it's fabulous. 
And then um, from Squamish, you you know, there's lots of beautiful hikes. There's Garibaldi, which you go up to a glacier area and it has lots of switchbacks and you can hike up to Elfin Lakes and there's uh, a cabin up there. You can stay overnight. It's beautiful. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Whistler has tons of beautiful hikes. Uh, I don't like singing pass. I think they call it that because of the mosquitoes, okay. but uh, <laughs> no, thanks. it's, you know, lots of day hikes. <laughs> and do you, where you are in Gibson's, is that like considered sort of the edge of civilization when it comes to like Vancouver or you've, it's pretty well, um, well settled you know, in that area? Oh yeah, there's uh, there's about five thousand people, but you know there's like little towns. So there's Gibson's, there's Seashell. You can take another ferry and go to Powell River if you like fishing. That's kind of where you go fishing. Um, but um, no, it's uh, it's Gibson's is kind of like a suburb. It's like West Vancouver. It's a forty minute ferry ride. Okay. So a lot of people have like like we do like a, a place in North Van and a cottage. Um, on the Sunshine Coast, we're kind of like our big house is in Gibson's and our our little place for the city is in North Van. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. I'd love to get out there someday. It's definitely on my list to yeah. check out, but it, it's just... We'll have coffee. Yeah, we'll it's have beautiful. coffee and uh, we, you can... You know what we have <laughs> is great mountain biking. We have this park called Sprockets in Gibson's. Okay. And it is fantastic. And that's where Steve spends a lot of time picking up broken... Um, you know, mountain bikers with searching. Oh boy! Yeah. And is your your uh, winter season is it similar to ours, where it's you know it, it's it's pretty heavy winter from say December until March, or does it extend even? I better longer? be shorter. No, we we're shorter summer anyway. Very mild weather here on the coast. Hmm. So um, this has been a little bit colder than usual, but uh, yeah, no, it's green. The daffodils are blooming. It's We've had uh, the the snow line is a little bit lower than usual, but hmm. I mean, no, it's very very mild. So I mean, winter by February it's pretty much over. Um, hmm. We might get some snow in December, January. Wow, similar. Um, yeah, God, yeah. That's surprising. Yeah, and I have to say, like, I like the structure of the book, um, you know, for the audience. Like, I don't want to give away, like, too many details, but essentially, a lot of the chapters are, are broken down by a particular type of That's search. Right. So, you've got, like, stories about avalanches, caves, you know, underwater mm-hmm. diving. You've got um, mountains, rope rescue, swift water. And then what, what Kathleen does is she interview, like, she'll she'll introduce a search and rescue team member. And it's like, I was going to ask you the question. You probably get this all the time. Like, Oh, what, what are the common aspects of all the search? And but everybody's got different backgrounds and sort of, they, they all have a common interest in like, you know, the, a lot of them are very sort of focused on, you know, help. They want to help people for sure, but everyone yeah. has sort of their own backgrounds and motivations around it. But you sort of mm-hmm. tee up their, their backgrounds and then, you know, you'll talk about a particular incident, get the search and rescue members perspective on it. And then there's some stories where you'll actually reach out to people that were involved as, um, you know, the people that were being rescued. And even Mm -hmm. in the last chapter, you have some stories about people that went missing, which to me is like, I feel like I can very easily process stories that have a beginning and a clear end. Even if that ending is like, 
you know, sad <laughs> and the person doesn't survive and there's a fatality. But that last chapter where you were talking about the missing people and, you know, dealing with the family members and the fact that like they don't have that closure to know exactly what happened. Those cases yeah. to me have always been sort of the most heartbreaking, but also the most interesting because it's just like, you know, how do you process something like that? So I would have to assume some of those discussions might have been the most difficult, I would think, as you were doing the book. Uh, they weren't easy. Mm-hmm. And you try and suspend your own theories and beliefs uh, about them. Um, actually, one of them was resolved um, since the book has come out. And it it wasn't a good outcome, but I mean, it's always a good outcome if there's closure, yes. right? Um, and it was like, how could they have not found that person? That's a mystery in itself because the person, the, the remains were found so close to the search area. So you're like, did they get moved later? Like, is there foul play? Yeah. Hmm. But um, yes, talking to the mothers of missing people is really really difficult yeah um and and i actually you know talked to every as many people as i could reach out like as far as 40 years ago about their loved one and um i I was super nervous but they were really wonderful and they love that their loved one is going to be remembered in a book yeah what's your thoughts on one of the things that we do on this podcast is we try to look at some of the data around search and rescue incidents that happen in New Hampshire and every region's different. Like, like I said, like we don't avalanche is a factor, but a lot of, you know, the backcountry skiers in New Hampshire have to worry about avalanches for the most part, the hikers will generally avoid it. Um, but from your perspective, like, did you, was there anything that you found from speaking with search and rescue team members or anything you found in the books around themes or that you think, could help with prevention. Like I know you had mentioned that like young men tend to be the ones that get in more trouble and how do we get the message out to them? But any thoughts on how, you know, how how do we expand whether it's a marketing campaign or education? Like what are your thoughts around getting the word out to young people on safety? Well, I think adventure smart. Um, We have that in our province. I don't know if you have a similar program Uh, does a great job and they start when the kids are little. And they have this program called Hug a Tree. So if you get lost, Hug a Tree. So it teaches them to like not move, not go anywhere. Yeah, not move. And so they do a a really excellent job. And uh, Adventure Smart has an app on your phone that you can do your trip plan. So, you know, like for for example, Mike, when you go out on all your adventures, Mm Do you tell someone where you're going? Yeah, of course. It's like standard operating procedure. Like I'll tell my wife the night before and then I have a Sharpie and I write like, you know, here's the trailhead. Here's what time I'm getting on trail. Here's who I'm hiking with. Here's the the, uh, the route I'm taking. Here's what time I expect to be done. And then I'll check in with you. And then I say, love Mike. And I do, but I don't say love. Then- I do a little heart. <laughs> So what happens if you don't check in at the time you say you're going to check in? Um, Generally, I've talked to my wife about that. I've like, I've said like, don't panic. Like my battery could die. Things could happen. I usually say like, you know, give it a couple hours. And then if you don't hear something, then (laughs) panic. That's a tough one. Okay. I've been in that position several times. 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. Okay. And how do you, how do you, how do you deal with it, Stomp? Like, oh. what's the protocol <sighs> at your house? It's tricky. I mean, oftentimes there's no communication because of poor reception. So you just have to bite the bullet and wait a little longer than perhaps planned on. But it's not a comfortable uh, position. I I can remember two instances where I was waiting and almost, you know, pulling the plug and calling for help, um, waiting for my wife and uh, a few other situations with other people. And Ultimately, at the last moment, they did contact me like, whew, thank goodness. But you get to those moments where it's just like, oh, my God, where are they? What's going on? You just start thinking and uh, worrying. But Well, do you have like satellite? Do you have a spot? Um, I don't. I don't. I have a PLB, which is a locator beacon, which I use for, you know, no communication. If I'm in trouble, I can press it and... Yeah you know, help will come. Um, generally in the whites, there is cell communication, but you know, where I, where I live in particular, there's no communication outside of where I am, uh, by text. It's very rare that we get reception. So, you know, someone may have service, but I may not get it, that type of thing. So it's somewhat inconsistent here in the uh, white mountains. Yeah. I mean, it's the same here in BC. Yeah, we have spotty cell and sometimes even spotty satellite. But um, mm. even on your phone now, they say the new iPhones have those um, really good satellite connections. Yeah, and even leaving your cell phone on is helpful for you know the authorities to track you. Sure. But you know, having a spot, um, it can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And. Yeah. So, I mean, you're doing all the right things and we need to, you know, I think um, I'm, you know, going to like I went to um, uh, a college where they have an outdoor guide program and talking to the guides who are young. uh, That's helpful. And going to University of Washington uh, to talk to the students because they're in that age group where they're at high risk. Uh, That really helps. yeah, so talking to them and educating them, uh, you know, what should you carry? What are the 10 essentials? You know, mm-hmm. where can you get a pack with the 10 essentials? Um, never go out without your 10 essentials, you know what I mean? Uh, and make sure you have a charged cell phone and, you know, make sure you're going to be in range. Like, you know, if you're not, carry your spot device, you know, all these things. So, so you guys work with the 10 essentials as well? Of course, yeah. I have a friend who actually so, um, makes up a pack of them and and sells them online. And they're it's awesome because especially, you know, in civil air, because you want to keep the weight down. So she has a very lightweight option. Mm-hmm. So, but so you can what's make your, your I'm just curious what the source is for the 10 essentials. Like, where did this come from? Was this something from the AMC or was this something that developed up north or where exactly? Uh, Adventure Smart. Okay. wonder what their uh, sources are. Yeah. Well, here it's Adventure Smart is um, our educational. And, they're, and they work with uh, Search and Rescue. They're part of Search and Rescue. Right, right. The BC Search and Rescue. Yeah. I wonder if, if Canada's 10 essentials are the same as New Hampshire's. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do some research. 
<laughs> I apologize for my my lag here. It's it's a bit of a delay. So okay, like one of them is not beer. <laughs> not beer. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Stomp. I think the ten essentials are universal at this point. Uh, but Kathleen, I'm curious about the sort of the overall process for writing the book. So a book like this is not easy because you're you're. It's not like. Uh, in my my idea of like a book would be like okay you pick a subject you're going to do some research on your own you might interview like three or four people or maybe five six you must have interviewed like dozens of people like so you're you're interviewing the search and rescue team members you're interviewing some of the the victims and then some of the family members as well can you talk about like what was the volume of interviews and then how did you organize and manage everything Oh, well, um, like I said, I've been a freelance journalist for um, about four, over 40 years. So that part was easy in a way, but the subject matter was not. Um, so I, I could only do one or two a day. I did three one day and it was exhausting, just mentally draining. Because as you know, having read it, it's um, some of the stories are pretty harrowing and the most harrowing stories I did not put in the book because I couldn't bear to write them. It was mm. pretty, uh, pretty rough. So um, I, I contacted all the search and rescue groups in North America, like every single one. And I, anyone who would talk to me, I would talk to them. Um, so of, of course it was a leap of faith for them because they didn't know who I was. I was just some, well, except for the local people here, and they were awesome um, in the Sunshine Coast Search and Rescue. Uh, so I, I have to really appreciate and uh, respect them for taking that leap of faith because it is not easy to talk about. And, there, and, and as Stomp said, there's sort of a code and a process that they all have to go through to talk about it because there are confidentiality issues and none of the people that I interviewed gave me names. I did the research, I combed the archives, I had to go and look at, you know, all these newspaper newspaper articles to find out who the people might have been. Uh it wasn't always possible if it wasn't a high profile case like a serial killer or uh something like that or a spectacular case. Um, but, um, yeah, so, uh, that's what I did. Anybody would talk to me. I talked to over 60 search and rescue members. Uh, not all of them made it into the book because, you know, my publisher said, you know, paper weighs <laughs> a lot, you know, like we have to cut it by at least 30%. Oh, that's and I was tough. like, oh no, please don't make me. Yep. <laughs> because these are people. Yeah, it was tough. And there there are people who have said, I'm really disappointed I didn't make the cut. I'm like, I'll have to write another book. And then I thought, I'm thinking now, like, mm-hmm. what if some of those people have to be cut and I'll just never be mm-hmm. done? <laughs> so it's really, it's really been tough. Um, <laughs> so, and then, yes. And then on top of that, there was contacting the families and, you know, the people that survived. And so I don't know, maybe 75 people. And uh, I, I tried organizing it in different ways, geographically, alphabetically, but what made more sense was by the type of rescue 
that was dominant in the story because some of them have more than one story they wanted to tell. So I hope that answers your question. Hmm. Yeah, no, and it, it, it makes sense. And I think the other thing that I found interesting was there was a fair number of stories that were, we're a hiking show. So I think we tend to focus on the aspects of search and rescue tied to the mm-hmm. traditional, you know, somebody's out hiking That's with a backpack better. and they're semi prepared, but many of the situations that search and rescue team members deal with it, there's elderly people walking off because they have, you know, cognitive disabilities. There's young people that are getting in trouble, whether they're out doing things they shouldn't be doing, partying and walking away or other things like that. And then there's, you know, vehicle accidents and, and other, other situations. So it opens up sort of the perspective to say, it's not just about the the people hiking and backpacking, but there's a whole world out there that search and rescue manages around just people getting in trouble for many other reasons. Yes. um, You know, there's children who run away from home um, like you said, elderly people who try and go home and, you know, it, it, and they may be thousands of miles away. So, yeah. And then there's people with special needs mm-hmm. and they all behave differently. So they have to be prepared for whatever happens. So, yeah. Yeah. Very good. And um, the other thing I did want to ask you and then stop. If you have any other questions, uh, you can take it. But um, social media and media coverage in particular, you know, we've always sort of like been, you know, we only deal with things that are published in the media and we don't even share people's names when we're doing search and rescue stories. But can you talk about, um, I guess, from the search and rescue team members perspective, how they view social media and then can you talk a little bit about like what you think is the reason why certain rescue missions or certain events will get a lot of media publicity and then others will go under the radar yeah i mean social media is kind of the bane i think of search and rescue uh because people you know get attacked for making the choices that they make and uh it can mean the difference between life and death. Um, you know, people will delay calling search and rescue because they don't want to be a story, you know, that gets passed around on Insta or Twitter or whatever and be shamed in public. So there was one case in the book, I'm sure you remember it, where um, a young woman um, called her boyfriend instead of 911. Now, we don't know why, because she didn't survive, but, um, you know, there's speculation that she was afraid of, because she was an Instagrammer, um, that she was afraid of being humiliated. Now, we will never really know, like maybe she was just confused or didn't really know what to do. Uh, we don't know, but, you know, there's speculation that she was afraid of being shamed publicly. And uh, what was the second part of your question? Oh, why do some things get published in the newspaper? Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't really answer that because um, I, I suppose um, if someone goes missing, that is usually published because uh, the RCMP are very good. Sorry, the Mounties here, and I'm sure the sheriffs in the States are very good about trying to find that missing person. 
Um, so that always, I, as far as I know, that gets a lot of media attention. They put the person's, you know, details up their picture where they were la- their last known point, um, where they were seen. I mean, for sure, I think that gets a lot of attention. Um, but you know, there's just so many here, like on the North Shore, they, they can't just, you know, publicize everything. I mean, most of it's pretty routine. Let's say it's a large group. You know, if you have uh, four or five young men <laughs> going off trail at night because they started out too late, uh, they might, you know, that draws attention. So I think the amount of people involved or the severity of the injury or, say, um, the duration and amount of resources required or if it's somebody with some kind of celebrity attached, those usually make it. Yeah. And that's what I, I tend to see is that the ones that get the bigger sort of um, news cycle tend to be the sort of longer drawn out searches where they go over a couple of days and people are, um, they tend to pick up a little bit more momentum over time. So. Um, that's at least how we see it here in New Hampshire anyway. Or, you know, it's something that is is good for the public to know about. Like um, we had an incident of people eating mushrooms and getting ill. So they had to uh, actually send a helicopter in, in the nighttime to get them in a remote location. So they were like, you know, let's just be aware that we shouldn't eat or boil or in any way, consume mushrooms unless you know what you're doing. So that happens in the spring here. We have a, I don't know about you, uh, if wild mushrooms are a deal there, but they're a multi, multi million dollar uh, industry here. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's a thing, the mushrooms. <laughs> so, so a lot of things are seasonal. Wow. Yeah, we do. We do have mushrooms, but most of those people that are involved are very secretive about it. So we never well, see, hear about it. See, that's the problem. It's a very secretive yeah. society. And so we're, we're working very hard to educate people. There's plenty of mushrooms for everyone. And they're like, you know, the more you pick them, the more they grow. So you don't need to be secretive. And people die picking mushrooms because they keep their head down. They get lost. They don't know what they, where they are. They're disoriented, you know. And then, you know, we've got mushroom pickers lost. So they, you know, they lose one every season, one or two. So, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It hasn't gotten that big here in New Hampshire, but I know that one of our friends does is, you know, he's a, he's a forager. So um, we'll keep that in mind. But any other, uh, what other projects do you have in the future? Are you going to do anything hiking related or search and rescue related again? Or are you got any new, new plans? Um, I Uh-oh. am doing a lot of book. Yeah. <laughs> somebody wants a treat or something. That's okay. So you've got him. Um, oh, he's going to get, oh, he's earned a ticket outside. Nice. <laughs> well, I've, you know, I've, I've had, you know, I've had it in my mind to do a volume two um, and do some more interviews. Uh, but I'm sort of like, oh my God, it's so much work. And then there's the nightmares and the sleepless nights. And, uh, hmm. and, you know, I already have to deal with that, having Stephen uh, being a ground search and rescue member. Um, right. So there's that. Um, I, 
I've been writing a lot of um, book reviews. I enjoy doing that. I'm very busy with my uh, writers group here and also on the North Shore. So I have some ideas of what I want to do, but that's the problem when you have a book as successful as this one has been. What do you follow up with that? Does a sequel, um, do people really want a sequel? Um, you know, is that, or does it take away from the strength of the first book? So, you know, I've, I've been playing with some ideas, but, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, do I work with other, uh, types of first responders? Like I'm really interested in heavy urban search and rescue, but they're very secretive. Um, they are, are paid. They're, you know, people from, um, like firefighters and ambulance people, paramedics, that sort of thing. And they come together yeah. when there is a huge issue. Uh, yeah, yeah. So maybe, you know, about them, but, um, and they get deployed all over the world, like at least here, uh, they can. So that would be like a group that would go in after there was like a major earthquake or, or some, something like that when building collapse, like we saw out in Turkey. Yes. And actually, yes, uh, actually one of our, heavy ur- urban rescue pe- um, groups from here did go. And um, so, yeah, I'd love to uh, interview those people, but because they are, well, actually they went despite not being cleared to go by the federal government. And we're like, yeah, you're heroes. <laughs> but um, because they're funded differently, they're not so inclined to speak to me. So, um, you know, as much as I would, Love to. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. So, hmm. Excellent. Well, the book is called Rescue Me, Behind the Scenes of Search and Rescue, and the author is Kathleen Labonte-Smith, who has been nice enough to join us here. Um, so definitely we will link the um, in the show notes how you can purchase the book. And I did read it, and I really enjoyed it. Like I said, the format, it's tricky. There's just so many stories, but I think you nailed the format perfectly. Oh, so, yeah, I think <laughs> it was really good. So, Stomp, any other questions? I do. I have a couple. Um, Kathleen, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in search and rescue, and um, my wife has to put up with my just – random calls where I just have to get up and go. And it seems like you're in a similar situation where your partner has to just get up and go. And of course it's all volunteer and um, that creates a lot of stress and, you know, relationships and family dynamics. And, um, um, you know, in New Hampshire, we've done a lot of work within the teams, within the community to deal with, you know, critical incidents, stress debriefing, and just, um, you know, just different ways to, to address issues that come up. Did you get to talk to some of the people during your interview process about these dynamics? Can you share anything that you might've heard? Uh, Yeah, I actually um, talked to quite a few people from CISM. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of them is now the president of BC SARA. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he's a CISM. uh, counselor. And yeah, it's really important. In some ways, I think the Canadian groups are ahead of the American, some of the American groups, for sure. I think some of the American groups I talked to are just starting to um, adopt that. So mm-hmm. debriefings are really important. 
And uh, I think Steve, um, he just has that personality where he can handle these sorts of incident, you know, critical incidents better than me. Like um, when I hear that there's a child over the radio, it's a child. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty um, in, invested in the outcome. Oh, sure. But the good thing is that, yeah, um, it, it's a hard call for all of the people involved. Um, but, you know, I have to sit at home and wait till it, fi- till I find out for most of them there, you know, he can get called out at two in the morning and uh, I fall back to sleep and I don't even notice when he comes home anymore. <laughs> I just sleep through it. And then mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I can do that, but there are some that are really, you know, when it gets called out for um, a senior or a child that really, I can't fall back to sleep again. It, it yeah. is worrying. Um, yeah, the really vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I kind of, I'm doing the same thing with civil search and rescue now. So I, I think it's better if you're both doing it. So you can, yeah, it makes sense. You know, sympathize. Are there different layers of um, volunteerism up there, such as, you know, here in, in the Northeast, we have stewards that are volunteers that will sit at the trailheads to uh, counter you know, hikers coming in and just to talk to them and make sure that they're ready. Do you have something similar up in Canada? No, but that's a great idea. Mm, yeah, it's been really effective down here. Oh, Stephen says Adventure Smart does that. Okay. Yeah, that's it's been effective. Yeah, it's kind of a myth, though, that, that search and rescue will patrol like, you know, like the park wardens no. or something. They don't do that. Right, right. Yeah, there's just not enough help. Yeah, that's impossible. And I think, you know, I, I talked to one woman who was um, rescued um, for those of you who have read the book or will read, read the book. It was um, uh, Annette Poitras, the woman mm-hmm. who uh, survived by um, having her dogs keep her warm overnight. Uh, well, for three nights, actually, <laughs> that's the only way she survived. She is now like uh, an enforcer. She'll go into the woods and if you're not carrying your essentials or you have the wrong footwear, she'll tell you to go back. <laughs> yeah. So, oh boy. She does it in a nice way. Like I, I don't know if I'm brave enough to approach people and tell them you have to go back to your car. But anyway. Yeah. That's, that's an ongoing debate <laughs> about how to deal with situations like that. Last question I have yeah. um, in New Hampshire, we have a structure that is based upon the, incident command structure, which is under NIMS national incident management system. So it's basically a hierarchy where we have New Hampshire fishing game as the lead. And then all the volunteer groups underneath that take their cue from New Hampshire fishing game. So how is the structure set up in uh, BC and in Canada in general? Do you have the volunteer teams just out there doing their own thing or who's the lead? Um, well, there are five different authorizing um, uh, groups, but the main one is the Mountie CRCMP. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we do use the uh, command system. You have shares, but um, from what I understand, um, some of the groups get way more involved with the sheriff's office than, than, um, than they do here with the RCMP. It's quite separate. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So the RCMP would be more of like a, a federal versus a local sheriff. Well, what, what happens? Yes. What happens is the 911 call goes into the um, call center mm-hmm. and then the RCMP decide what, who they want to deploy. Okay. So often they're the first on the scene. They might bring their own search and rescue dogs or whatever. And then they decide, uh, well, this is, you know, beyond what we can provide. So then they call in uh, search and rescue. Gotcha. Interesting. I mean, if there's no criminal element involved, if there's guns or weapons. They don't- oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Do you think your um, volunteer um, crews are sufficient to deal with the calls that are coming in? Oh, that's a good question. I think it varies per group. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, some groups know because they've had to close. They haven't had enough people. Oh, really? But there are some groups like North Shore Rescue. They'll have like four or five positions and they'll get hundreds of applications. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Excellent. So it just depends where you are. I think Mm -hmm. here on the coast, they have, I think they have about as many people as they need. Mm -hmm. When you make a call out more members. So it depends where you're, where you are. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's all I had, Mike. (laughs) Thanks, Kathleen and Steve. Excellent. Excellent. So again, um, yeah, so again, the book is Rescue Me, and we'll put all the info in the show notes here. And I liked it. It was Thank a, uh, I'm a fast reader, but I, I definitely blew through it. I like the uh, the stories and the format, and I learned a lot. Thank so you. I'm very impressed. So now this is the part of the show where we transition, mm-hmm. Kathleen, to recent search and rescue news. So hang out. You, you, uh, the, uh, there's going to be something that comes up that you're going to you're going to want to comment on, or you'll you'll be interested in here. Sure. Just to start off with, we've got two national slash global stories and then one local story. I think you'll be interested in the local story. Um, so stop. This first one here is out of Taiwan, and this is a story of a U.S. woman. You actually, Kathleen, you, something you brought up earlier around separating um, mm-hmm. comes up in this one. But this is a a story that was sent by, again, I think this was sent by our friend Al. So a U.S. woman is missing and a guide dies in Taiwan Mountain. So an American woman was missing after her guide was found dead in the mountains of central Taiwan and uh, this has happened on Saturday, April 22nd, a group consisting of the guide, two assistants, and three women from the United States took off on Tuesday for a six-day hike over the mountains of Nantu County to end in Awanda National Forest on Monday. So April 18th, they left, and they were supposed to finish on April 24th. Heavy rain damaged their tent and slowed their progress, with the group ending up deciding to split up as two of the women moved faster than the other hiker. Um, Mm -hmm. So the guide whose surname was Chen stayed with the third woman. um, Well, her two friends had decided they were going to move forward. Chen had um, his assistants 
um, I guess apparently went with the other two women um, and Chen stayed with the, the slower hiker. Eventually, he had called them on Wednesday to say that he was hi- suffering from hypothermia Well, the hiker who was remaining was dealing with altitude sickness. They had no tent and only basic food. So um, the the assistants had called emergency services for help. Uh, Eventually, they were able to locate Chen two days later, and he had suffered a a cardiac arrest event. uh, Well, the other hiker was nowhere to be found. So there was some material found off trail um, down a cliff. And they are planning to sort of go down into that, that, that drainage area to see if they can locate the woman. But they did use some helicopters, uh, but oh, they were hoping to use helicopters, but the weather has been too difficult. So um, the two other hikers made it out fine and um, decided to, I guess, head out. But this is a case where who knows if everyone stuck together, maybe they all might have died. But I also think that if they stuck together, maybe... Um, Things could have been different, but this is a case where you get a guy that decides that they're going to split up. Which bad, bad news. You, know, you never know how what level the guides you're dealing with. That's a really sad story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you got to imagine that you know there's a lot of interesting things that they could double, they could think through on this one. But ultimately, it's just you know weather is always the X factor. This is true. I wonder if they brought search dogs in. I don't know. Um, there's no follow-up. So I took a look around and it's it's the Taiwan news. So I'll look to see if there's any follow-up. I'll keep an eye on it over the next week or so. But um, as of now, the woman is still missing. It's awful. I wonder what the ages are. Yep. Yeah, I didn't say. So... Next story here, Stomp, is um, this is a story about the Appalachian Trail. And this highlights to me, Stomp, how different the Appalachian Trail is on the southern end compared to when they get up to our our region. Mm -hmm. So um, drug dealing duo targeting hikers along the Appalachian Trail were arrested. So this happened in Macon County, North Carolina. Police say they were able to arrest two suspects after a tip that the duo were traveling Appalachian Mountain Towns and allegedly selling narcotics to hikers. Oh so um, <laughs> deputies went to, I guess a tip came through that the suspects were currently in Rock Gap in Macon County. And deputies went to this location and found a vehicle belonging to the two suspects. They were able to get a canine search going. They found five and a half pounds of marijuana, eight ounces of mushrooms, LSD, and... THC wax regin. I can tell you some five and a half pounds of marijuana. I mean, if it's in bricks, it's not as big, but like that's a lot of marijuana. Um, Bob, uh, the 51 year old female and a 36 year old male were taken into custody and charged with possession. Um, apparently the male was also wanted in Virginia for charges of arson, but, um, the Appalachian trail down South stomp is a big party. There's a lot of partying going on down there. By the time they get up to New Hampshire, like the party's no over. To party. Yeah. The real work begins. Exactly. Yeah. That's a riot. Well, I have a story about, about the Appalachian Trail in my book too, remember? Oh, yeah. About Inchworm. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a sad that's story. Sad. I mean, that is so heartbreaking. Very heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. And that's an interesting situation because- 
um, she made it so far and you assume that like, you know, making it like that far that, you know, something like that would be a pretty standard situation to step on the trail. And the the takeaway from that one is don't go alone, but I'm sure both of you hike alone all the time. We do. We do. Yeah. Quite a bit. And you should, you know. I always say, like, if you're going to wait for people to hike with, you're never going to go hiking. So you do have to sort of take that risk. Don't you hike together? Sometimes. Uh, occasionally. But, um, <laughs> you can feel the love. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I only have so much patience. <laughs> so anyway, all right. And then this last one's an interesting story. So um, Hampstead, New Hampshire is, I think, closer to my region. So I'm in northern Massachusetts. I think Hampstead's down south. Um, but the skeletal remains were found in Hampstead on April 22nd. Um, conservation officers were training with New Hampshire Fishing Game Department's newly acquired aerial drone, which law enforcement division was able to purchase through a generous donation from both an anonymous donor and the Wildlife Heritage Foundation of New Hampshire. The CO was flying the drone near the place that John Matson of Hampstead was last seen in July of 2022. There was an extensive search for Maston. Um, which was completed in July, but unfortunately those involved in the search were unable to find him. Efforts to locate him had been ongoing since July. With the use of the drone, the conservation officer was able to search a swamp that was nearly impossible for ground crew to access, and he's able to find skeletal remains of a person in the swamp. Amazing. The remains were removed on Sunday, April 23rd, by Hampstead Police Department and New Hampshire Fish and Game positive identification of the body will be made by state uh, state of New Hampshire medical examiner's office in days to come. Um, and although the body has not been positively identified, New Hampshire Fishing Game and Hampstead Police Department would like to thank the public and all involved in this unfortunate incident. Um, but this is fascinating that they've got a, a drone that can get into those swampy areas and actually do ground searches like that because, I mean, this is a tree covered and dense area. So I don't know if they're flying under canopy or above canopy or mm. what the deal is. That sounds uh, like, I, we don't, I don't think we use enough uh, drone technology in search and rescue. You don't think we use no. enough yet? Well, not here in Canada. I yeah. don't think so. Um, and I, I know Corey Cooper, um, he's the fellow, the amputee from uh, Auburn, Washington. He's going to be my co-presenter in Seattle. Um, mm-hmm. he has a video on his, um, Corey Cooper's amputee lifestyle YouTube. And he's got mm-hmm. like these submarines that they, on his days off that he goes and looks for missing people. And, uh, so if you can do that with a drone versus having to pull out a submarine, I mean, that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Especially, I think the most interesting aspect of this will be, when the technology develops enough that you can use a drone, like a micro drone that has camera access access, and you can maneuver under canopy stomp. Imagine like being able to go in, like I think about the, there was a case in the early 1980s, Kathleen, that, um, you know, there was a missing hiker that's never been found in Franconia Ridge, which is an area, you know, imagine being able to go under canopy and actually just sort of search inside the woods to see if there's signs of a missing person. Like right. I, I don't think the technology is there yet it's because close. the drones are pretty big. And, you know, I, 
but it's getting close. Or airplanes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but interesting story. There's so many different things coming out now. Um, it's moving quick mm-hmm. too, but you know, the, the drones themselves can actually self-navigate and avoid obstacles. So it's getting close. It's all about how much they cost. <laughs> yeah. You know, here in New Hampshire, we're using them for post-mission forensics. Um, we are using them for searches, ground searches, and um, just actually alpine searches as well. Um, but they're becoming more and more useful. Um, initially, a couple of years ago, there was some doubt, but they're starting to show their worth. Well, in New Mexico, the paramilitary um, search and rescue groups that I wrote about, um, they use them to drop off supplies. Sure. They must be pretty big, but wouldn't it be great if, you know, the civilian search and rescue could use that too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think we're that far away, but this, this case is very interesting and I got a feeling it's probably going to be used as like a case study for like national search and rescue. I'm sure that people will be very interested Mm -hmm. in this one. Uh, Do you have e-bikes? E-bikes, electric bikes. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's very common here, but I don't think we're using them at all for search and rescue. Typically like when they need to get fast access to trailheads, um, generally they'll use ATVs and off-road vehicles. Um, They use them here a lot. Uh, It, cuts the time in half and a lot of the trails are not uh, cannot accommodate ATVs so that's what they use now so hmm. interesting yeah I don't, and I don't know what the trail structure is out there but for us it's very difficult like there's so much rock coverage and roots and it's 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 not even that that easy to take a, a, a bike on some of these trails these are mountain bike e-bikes so they're yeah. pretty rugged yeah hmm interesting wow, wow. We'll see. I'm sure the future will hold all kinds of new tech. Yeah. I had a chapter written on tech, but they, the publisher made me take it out. So that's so. book two. Oh, well, maybe for the next book. <laughs> yeah, a whole book then. Yeah. Star tech. Yeah, well, well, Kathleen, I appreciate it. You made it through. Uh, was this your first podcast or have you done other ones before? Um. You know, this is my first one. I've done... Um, Yay! Yeah. Uh, I've done like <laughs> Zoom uh, presentations, but uh, yeah, definitely yeah. my first podcast. Well, you did great cool. and uh, we, get a, we get a pretty good audience here. So hopefully you'll, you know, you'll get a lot of new eyes on your book and um, you know, let's stay in touch. When I plan my trip out to Vancouver, I'm going to be reaching yes. out to you and um, you hold a cup of coffee for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will take, I've done reviews on coffee shops. I'll take you to the best. Oh, there you Excellent. go. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much. And Stomp, I don't know. I guess I'll see you when I get a gig out in New Hampshire. Yes. Yes, I hope so. And trust me, get your book out to uh, The Mountain Wanderer with Steve Smith and uh, Lahoots. You'll be. I sent him an email. I mean, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, don't worry. He's out there bushwhacking. He'll get back to you. Okay. He's a sweetheart. <laughs> yeah. And who's ever in charge at REI? Let's get the book in there. And I EMS. Know, I know people. EMS. Well, they're not doing very well. Maybe they, they can't take off <laughs> True. Well, true, true. But all right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. Thank you. It was just a delight. Awesome. Thank you, Excellent. gentlemen. Thanks, Kathleen. Excellent.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Holy one hell! Here's Lieutenant James Neeland from New Hampshire Fishing Games. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.